Hello, it's Thursday morning. I'm Laura Lee. Here's what happened this week. I had planned on dedicating the whole show to the United Nations, but before I can get into the crazy that is the UN, we have to talk about Iran. So much has happened this week in Iran. Last Thursday, I began to hear little snippets of information about protests starting up in Iran. I tried to get some information from the news media, but they were basically silent on the issue. As we moved into the weekend, more and more pictures and videos began to show up on social media. I knew this was becoming something big. Then I saw this picture. It was a picture of a woman standing on a large box with her hair uncovered. She was waving a stick and on the stick was her hijab. The picture stopped me. I had to look at it. This was bravery. The next day I heard the woman was missing. Some said she was dead. Some said she was arrested. No one knows. All we know is she is missing. On the spot where the picture was taken, people started leaving flowers. As the weekend ended, 12 people had been killed by the government and over 400 had been arrested. In order to really understand what's happening in Iran, we need to learn the history. What brought us to this moment? Really, it's a story that's been growing and building since the year I was born. First, you have to understand the Iranians are not Arab, they're Persian. And for 2,500 years, Iran had a Persian monarchy. The leader of Iran was the Shah. If you look at pictures of Iran under the Shah, it looks basically the same as pictures of Canada in the 70s. Very Western. There was music, art, basic freedom. The women wore short skirts and the men wore ridiculous looking bell bottoms. Really, it would be hard to see the difference between pictures of families in Iran and families in Canada in the 70s. Definitely nothing like what we see today. Then, in October of 1977, things changed. Here in Canada, we were watching the first ever Star Wars. In Iran, they were starting demonstrations to get rid of the Shah. The people marching in the streets wanted an Islamic Republic. The demonstrations grew, and then in January the 16th of 1979, the Shah left Iran. And that's when those fighting for Islamic Republic began to fight harder. And then on April the 1st, 1979, Iran became an Islamic Republic. April the 1st, 1979. Basically, the worst April Fool's trick ever. The Iran people were promised an Islamic utopia. What they got instead was a hellhole. One of the core things about the Islamic government is the hatred of anything Western. The United States on the top of that hate list. The Shah found out he had cancer, so he went to the United States to receive cancer treatment. The Islamic government wanted him to be returned so they could try him for crimes. Clearly, it was going to be a completely fake trial and it was going to lead to his death. So America refused to send the Shah back to Iran. Then, November the 4th, 1979, the United States Embassy was surrounded and captured and 52 Americans are taken hostage. During the hostage taking, six Americans escaped the embassy. So they were in Iran hiding. And this is where Canada stepped in. This is a really cool story. A group of filmmakers worked with the CIA so they could find a way to rescue the six Americans who were hiding in Iran. So the crew made up this fake movie called The Caper and they got permission from the Iran government to shoot the film in Iran. There were six Canadians, one Irishman, and one American. And they went to Iran to make this fake movie. And while they were there, they rescued the Americans. There's this movie called Argo. I highly recommend it. Awesome movie. 
although they totally make it out like American did everything and they kind of leave Canada out of it completely, which that's kind of annoying. But still, if you're interested in this story, if this story sounds fascinating at all to you, you have to watch the movie Argo. It's great. All right, so those five were rescued, but Iran still had 52 hostages and those hostages were held for 444 days. Still to this day, that is the longest hostage crisis in history. Then came President Reagan. He was president for about five minutes and the hostages were free. Of course, the left to this day will say that's just a coincidence, but basically Reagan changed the entire world while he was in power. There's even the whole Berlin Wall thing. That's pretty cool. Maybe we'll talk about that in another podcast. So back to Iran, the 80s and 90s, things only got worse for Iran. The laws that came in were horrible, especially for women. Basically, every new law that came in made life worse. A married woman can't leave the country unless her husband gives her permission. A woman's testimony as a witness is only worth half as much as a man. In all public places, women have to wear the hijab and loose-fitting clothes. And there are morality police that go around and make sure you're following all the modesty requirements. That sounds super fun, right? Polygamy and temporary marriages were permitted, but only for men. They could have up to four wives, but not for women, not allowed for them. Women were frequently subject to honor killings. And in a case where a father kills his daughter, he's not liable for the death penalty, only imprisonment. But when someone is murdered, the family of the victim can actually forgive the murderer, and then there's no punishment. So let's say there's a girl, her dad kills her, her brother can say, oh, I forgive my dad, and then boom, no punishment. So this is why there was so much honor killings for women. In Iran, Christianity is seen as Western and supportive of the Shah. So under Islamic rule, it's against the law to convert to Christianity. Now, you have to understand something else here. Every single person has to have a religion. So you're born with a religion. If your father was Muslim, you're Muslim. So basically anyone who becomes a Christian was considered a converter and this is punished by death. There were small groups of Christian communities that were allowed to continue, but they were considered second class citizens. Basically, under the Islamic rule, life is horrible. Unless you're a Muslim man who really likes beating his wife, then it's great. So the 90s ended and in came the 2000s. Something changed social media came. Suddenly, people began to see how the rest of the world lived. A generation that had grown up having never lived in freedom began to hear the thoughts of pro-Western freethinkers. The Iran government had to stop this right away. So in 2009, Twitter was shut down and does not work in Iran. Social media that does exist is very monitored and people are jailed for saying anything against Islam or the Islamic government. But the crackdown on social media was too late. The younger generation had already seen what freedom looked like and they wanted it. The green movement started. It's also called the Persian awakening. The Persian people wanted the Islamic government out so they demanded freedom. So at this time, Obama was the president of the US and he is trying to make this agreement with Iran. So the whole Persian awakening, that caused a problem. So he did nothing. So all those fighting for freedom, they were arrested, killed, tortured. America did nothing. During the last 40 years of Islamic rule in Iran, 
The Iranian government has stated clearly they want to destroy Israel, wipe it off the map, kill every Jew. At one point, there was a large Jewish community living in Iran. This community can be traced all the way back to the book of Esther in the Bible, when the Jewish people lived under the Persian rule. Today, there are no Jews in Iran. Zero. While Obama was making this deal with Iran, the people of Israel begged him not to, because they knew the Iranian government wanted one thing. They wanted to build missiles and wipe Israel off the map. Obama didn't care. The Iranian people didn't want the deal. They were in the streets trying to overthrow the government. Obama didn't care. And then the deal was signed. Iran got everything. Literally, America flew planes with pallets of actual cash, millions, into Iran. What did Iran do? They promised to not build a nuclear bomb. Really no way of making sure that doesn't happen because now they have all the money and material needed to build it. It's kind of like the deal Bill Clinton made with North Korea. And we can see how well that turned out. But something else was happening between 2009 and today. A Christian revival began to sweep Iran. Listen to these numbers. In 2012, there was 384,000 Christians. Okay, 384,000 Christians. By 2016, there was 1 million Christians. And today, there are 3 million. These are people converting to Christianity even though the punishment for this is death. So now we're caught up to 2018. Iran is run by a man named Rouhani. And I know I'm not pronouncing that right. Close enough. Obama told us for eight years that this guy, Rouhani, is a really nice guy, a moderate. You can trust him. But under this guy's rule, executions have gone up. Acid attacks on women have increased. And that's where women are just walking down the road and people just throw acid in their face. More Christians have been put in prison. Basically, ever since 1979, every single year in Iran, it's gotten worse. In comes social media again. There's a new app called Telegram, and this is very useful in Iran, and this app has been used to share pictures and video, and has been used to, once again, awaken the Persian people for freedom. And last Thursday, the people hit the streets. At first, a few hundred, and then, Suddenly, almost every town began to stand up and demand freedom. Women are taking off their hijabs. People are shouting. Here's what they're saying. We don't want an Islamic Republic. We don't want it. We don't want it. They're using Islam as an excuse to drive people crazy. Independence, freedom, Iranian Republic. We are all Iranians. We don't accept Arabs. We're getting poor. The clerics are driving fancy cars. Shah, rest in peace. We will die, but we will take Iran back. Come out to the streets, Iranians. Shout for your rights. Death to the Revolutionary Guards. As I heard one podcaster say yesterday, as he was listening to what they were saying, they're basically saying, make Iran great again. CNN actually ran a story over the weekend saying that Iran was having a pro-government rally. Yeah. Great journalism there, CNN. ABC News declared that the U.S. didn't have any moral authority to talk about Iran because we don't talk about Russia enough. Except basically that's all ABC News talks about. And what exactly does Russia have to do with the Iranian people wanting freedom?
I don't know. So if you're watching the news and you're confused about Iran, I get it. Here's the problem. The left media are kind of in a weird place because they love Islam because it makes them feel all like multicultural. And they really don't want to run a story that shows that Islamic government is basically the worst thing ever. So, all right, there you go. That's what's going on with the Iran protest. So what exactly does that mean for Christians? Well, remember the people of Iran are not our enemies. The Islamic government is our enemy, but the people are not. Be inspired. What did you give up this year in order to live your life as a Christian? In Iran, the Christians give up everything, even their lives. They're willing to lose everything to follow Jesus. What are you willing to lose? And pray. Really, that should be number one. But we have to pray every day. Pray for the people of Iran. Pray for the Christians. Pray for those searching for truth. Pray for peace that we know can only be found in Jesus Christ. And talk about the Iranian people. Don't be afraid. In our politically correct world, many people are kind of stuck with this Iran story. They don't want to side with Iran people because that means saying Islamic rule is bad for people. Look, care more about the Iranian people than you do about being politically correct. All right, there's Iran. Now to talk about the UN. This was originally what the whole podcast today was going to be about. We'll have to shorten it a little bit because we did talk a lot about Iran. And I also have two other stories that I want to talk about at the end. Okay, the UN. Everyone talks about the UN with such respect. It drives me crazy. It seems to be just a given that the UN is this great organization that we all need to respect. I'm going to explain to you why the UN is garbage. Actually, it's worse than garbage. It's evil. I remember when I was in high school, I first heard about the UN. Well, okay, I'm sure I learned about it in elementary school, but in high school, I was actually paying attention. And I remember hearing my teacher talk about how amazing the UN was, how it was keeping us safe, it was going to make sure that there was no World War III. But as the teacher was explaining it, I had one thought. So what if the UN turns bad? I mean, what if someone like Hitler ended up running the UN? Wouldn't that make the UN actually dangerous? I mean, what if all the bad guys in the world found a way to be in charge of the UN? That sounds kind of scary. And basically, that's exactly what has happened. So the UN was founded in 1948. There was 50 original countries. Poland joined almost right away, making it 51. Canada, not actually on that list. But anyway, so even the original 51 countries, there were some problematic countries. But at least for the most part, it was only countries that had supported the fight against Nazis that were allowed in. That's basically changed. Anyone can pretty much be in the UN now. In 1948, the UN did what was probably the only useful thing it's done in its entire existence. It granted the Jewish people their own country and gave Israel back to the Jewish people. I'm pretty sure it's regretted it ever since and has basically done everything it can to destroy Israel. The UN is a huge failure. Let me share some examples. There's Somalia in 1991. So the dictator government ship is overthrown, the UN immediately leaves, and Somalia is thrown into this big civil war, and there's also a famine. The next year, the UN decides, okay, we're going to return, and they promise they're going to send 3,000 troops, they're going to arrive and help. The people were all hopeful and excited, except that the troops never showed up. So eventually, after a few years, the UN decided, uh, we probably should go fix that problem over in Somalia. 
So they went over there, they sent in food aid and peacekeepers. Well, the food aid drove the local farmers out of business and the peacekeepers beat, harassed and killed the Somalian people. They attacked hospitals, they shot into crowds of people, women and children were killed. According to the UN, all of those who were killed in the area were in combat area. So they counted as combatants. Okay, there's Rwanda. January 11th, 1994, the UN was warned that a genocide was going to take place in Rwanda. They completely ignored it. Then on April 6th of that year, the president of Rwanda was killed when his plane went down. This started the killing of 800,000 Tutsi people. The UN did nothing to stop it. In fact, the UN ordered the troops to use no military force. So basically, they stood and watched the genocide take place. But it gets worse. Thousands of Tutsis went to a school that the UN was protecting to hide in it for safety. The UN then lied to the people, told them, promised them that they would not leave, but then secretly left the school and the Tutsis were then massacred. In 1995, in the middle of the Bosnian War, the UN set up safe zones for people to escape the war. Then the UN refused to allow the troops to defend the safe zones. So about four months after the safe zones were established, the Serbs realized there's no one defending them. So they marched in and killed thousands of people. There have been 70 occasions where the UN has gotten involved. In all of them except two, they failed miserably and made the problem worse. Then there's all the corruption that's in the UN. In Lebanon, the UN is actually selling food that's supposed to be aid. They don't even take the labels off. You go into the supermarket to buy food, it still has the label on it that says UN aid, not to be sold. Nobody, not even the UN, disputes the fact that peacekeepers brought cholera to Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. More than 8,000 people died. Over 650,000 people got sick. Thanks, UN. That was helpful. This is on top of all the major sex scandals that the UN has been a part of. The troops have been accused of rape helping sex traffickers. So that's the UN, they're garbage. But it gets worse, not just on the ground, in the actual UN assemblies. Did you know in 1975, the UN actually declared that Zionism is racism. So if you believe the Jews should be allowed to live in Israel and that Israel is a country, you're a racist according to the UN. The UN hates Israel. Over the last few decades, they basically turned into a hate Israel group. Over the last 70 years, the UN has adopted 135 resolutions and 68 have been against Israel. That's more than half of them. From 2012 to 2015, the UN made 97 resolutions and 83 of them were against Israel. Have you paid attention to the news in the last few years? There's been a lot of countries that have done a lot of bad things. But of the 97 resolutions, 83 were against Israel. That's ridiculous. Okay, let's look at some of these. So there's the United Nations Educational Organization. They do 10 resolutions a year, all of them, 100% are against Israel, except for one year they made one resolution against Syria. Other than that, 100% against Israel. Here are some countries that they haven't made resolutions against. There's Cambodia. Almost the entire educated class in Cambodia was killed in the 70s. There's Haiti. Women in Haiti, only 25% of them finish high school. And if you go to the rural areas, it's only 2%. There's Papua New Guinea, where 60% of the women 
are illiterate. And if you go to the rural areas, it's 85. There's Palestine, which since they marry off their girls when they're still little girls, they don't go to school either. There's Pakistan. The education for Pakistan women is among the lowest in the world. There's Afghanistan. Only 3% of the girls get a primary education. And those girls are often attacked with acid on the way to school. Primary school girls. There's Ghana. An estimated 23 million girls do, are not in school in Ghana. There's Ethiopia. On the average, girls in Ethiopia go to school for two years. There's Liberia. Three out of five women in Liberia can't read. There's Bangladesh. More than half of the girls under 19 are married. And yeah, not in school. And there's Turkey, where parents believe that if you educate girls, you'll ruin them and spoil them and they won't be able to get married. And there's Yemen, where two out of three women in Yemen are illiterate. So, 10 resolutions a year, one against Syria, all the rest, all 10, every year against Israel. You're probably thinking, whoa, Israel must be really bad. I mean, all those other countries are horrible. Israel must be terrible. No, actually, Israel's pretty great. Uh, Here's some things. So children must, it's the law, they must attend school from age 5 to 18. It's the law. The culture also pushes for higher education, and education is a core value of Israel. What's the literacy rate for females in Israel? The literacy rate, 95.8%, making it the place in the Middle East you want to live if you're a girl. But maybe the UN's targeting them because it's hard for the Arabs in Israel. Nope, school is taught in both Hebrew and Arabic. And although biblical studies are mandatory, you can choose Muslim, Christianity, or Judaism. And the teachers are Jewish, Arab, and Christian. But still, every year, the UN passes 10 resolutions against Israel, condemning its educational practices. Then there's the World Health Organization. One week a year, they meet and they talk about all the global health policies. And resolutions are made to address global health issues. But no one particular country is targeted. Well, except for Israel. That one's targeted. Yep, every year, they have a special designated resolution just for Israel. So North Korea wasn't targeted, even though 5% of their population died of starvation. Africa, where two-thirds of the population have no access to health care. Nope, not them. Philippines, where 11 women die every single day giving birth. Or Venezuela, where its population has lost an average of 19 pounds a person because they're starving. None of those countries targeted. Only Israel. Israel, where every person receives free health care. And it's one of the best places in the world to get health care. Here are some of the things Israel has invented. They invented the pill cam. It's an easy way for doctors to see everything inside the body. They invented something called the Reul, which made paraplegic men now running races. They've invented cures for cancer. On top of all that, Israel has given aid to its neighbors who have faced the problems of civil war and terrorism. Still, only Israel is targeted by the World Health Organization. Then there's the Internal Labor Organization. This is supposed to improve labor conditions and regulate work hours and fight unemployment, protect workers. Only one single country was pointed out in a report, you guessed it, Israel. So there's 30 million slaves today, most in Africa. Maybe the UN could target that. No, only Israel, even though they have strict laws about overtime, minimum wage, age requirements. It's basically a great place to work and live. So then why? Why is Israel always targeted? Well, the UN is run by the monsters of the world. 
Anti-Semitism has always been a thing in Europe. And there's 50 Muslim countries that all want every Jew dead. And then there's the secular left. They hate Christians, they hate Jews, and they see them as Western civilization. And for some reason, Western civilization is bad. Most of the countries in the UN hate Israel because they hate Jews. But they don't only hate Jews, they love evil. This is ridiculous. The UN held a moment of silence when Kim Jong-il died. What kind of crazy holds a moment of silence for a man who publicly killed people for watching Disney movies and fed people alive to hungry dogs because they were caught reading illegal books? But literally, these monsters run the UN. Here's a few countries who are currently on the Security Council of the UN. Afghanistan, China, Cuba, Iraq, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela. What in the world? This is ridiculous. So what do we do? What do we do as Christians? Well, for starters, we need to understand what anti-Semitism is because it's coming into our churches. Christians who don't understand the UN's hatred for Jewish people, they hear all these resolutions and assume the Jewish people are bad. Way too often they hear Christians saying extremely anti-Semitic things. Remember this, the Jewish people are the only nation God specifically built. God put an unconditional promise on the Israel people. Unconditional promise. He would bless those who blessed Israel. He would curse those who cursed them. And history has shown God has kept that promise. Do not allow hatred for the Jewish people to enter your heart. All right, now for a little bit of Canadian news. Here's some Canadian news that's making international news. We have this really strange story of this guy named Joshua Boyle. Okay, so Joshua was married to Omar Carr's sister. If you don't know who Omar is, he was a 15-year-old that killed an American soldier in Afghanistan. He's also seen on videos making bombs. So the family is this high-ranking, respected family in the Taliban. Joshua worked as a spokesperson for this family. Then he divorced his sister and married an American girl named Caitlin. Then they traveled to Afghanistan for what they say was humanitarian missions. Although no real information is available, we really don't know why he was there. So Caitlin's family became really worried because they lost contact with them. So they made this YouTube video pleading for help and trying to find them. Meantime, there was no demands for ransom. They just disappeared. Then this year, they were located in this hidden Taliban camp by the Pakistans. And they said they've been held captive for the last five years. The couple had four children during this time. And one of those children was murdered by the Taliban. So once free, the couple refused any help from the USA. USA, where Caitlin's family was working and trying to find them and bring them home, no help. They refused any help from USA. The couple returned instead to Canada. So then the couple met with our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. The couple then met with our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and they also stated that they'd met with Trudeau before he, they left for Afghanistan and that the two had mutual interests. So that's interesting. The story is kind of weird and something doesn't really smell right. Then yesterday it got weirder. So Joshua was arrested for eight counts of assault, two counts of sexual assault, two counts of forced confinement, one count of death threat, one count of illegal substance, and lying to the police. So this is a really busy guy because he's only been in Canada for three months. So it keeps getting really weird. So is this guy a victim or is he a villain? So how does a Christian look at this story other than to be completely confused? 
Well, let me remind you of three people who we know for sure are victims. Three little kids who spent their entire life in a Taliban camp. What do I do as a Christian when I hear this story? Well, my heart breaks for those kids. That trauma that they faced will be lifelong. And I pray for those kids. All right, we're going to end with one last story. So three years ago, ISIS took control over a large area of Iraq, and Christians were forced to flee. So try to remember, you'll probably remember a lot of people here in Canada and USA were posting pictures of the letter N. Some of us had shirts made with the letter N. That's because ISIS painted the letter N on the doors of Christians. Many Christians were killed. They were beheaded. They were put on crosses. They were burned alive. Thousands left everything and fled in the middle of the night to the Kurdish area. And they've lived there for the last three years in camps. But this year, things changed. The American government, under the new leadership of Donald Trump, made it a mission to end the rule of ISIS. And they did. ISIS is now completely defeated in Iraq. Good news. Actually, amazing news. Something that wasn't covered on any news stations that I know of. The Christians of Iraq have returned to their homes. And they returned in time for Christmas. They returned to their churches. And although ISIS had destroyed the churches, had used them as a place of torture and to kill Christians, the Christians returned. And they were praising God. In all that has happened in the last three years, they were praising God. But an amazing thing happened. More Christians returned than had left. And that's because many of the Muslims who left in fear of ISIS have since become Christians. How amazing is that? If you're a Christian hearing this, I hope your heart is filled with joy and that you are inspired just like I am to know your brothers and sisters went through so much and they never lost faith. This is incredible. The story of both the Christians in Iraq and the Christians in Iran are amazing. If you're not a Christian and you hear these stories, you might be wondering why? Why would anyone want to be a Christian if it meant so much pain? Let me end today's podcast by explaining to you what a Christian is. A Christian isn't someone who's perfect, isn't someone who has all the answers. A Christian is someone who knows that they're a sinner. They know they've turned their backs on God and they've done things their own way. But God loved us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, we ad and when we admit we're sinners, when we believe that Jesus is God and he died and rose again to save us, when we call on him and ask him to forgive us of our sins, he does just that. He saves us from our sins. It's simple. It's easy for us. But for Jesus, it was not. He left heaven. He gave up everything, even his life, because he loves us. And once you've understood his love and given your life to him, nothing will ever be the same again. So if you've not done that, you should. There's no magic words. You just talk to Jesus. You tell him your story. You believe in him. And you ask him to forgive you. And he will. I'm Laura Lee. See you next Thursday.